0: Hello all, for your enjoyment, another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. On this episode, the most despicable and dastardly deeds of the first week or so of April, 1892. First, a bit of gentler news. Mary Pickford, eventual film star of the silent era, was born on April 8, 1892, as Gladys Marie Smith in Toronto, Canada. She, of course, would go on to be one of the first celebrity movie megastars in Hollywood history in a supercouple with husband Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Sorry, that's all the nice news I have for you. On to the rotten stuff. First up, off the front page of the Boston Globe, April 4th, the headline, Cut Her Throat. Laconia, New Hampshire, April 4th. Belknap County was shocked this morning by a cold blooded murder, which occurred at the Meredith Passenger Station just before the arrival of the morning train south. The victim was Drusilla A. Wigan of Lakeport, and the murderer was her husband, George E. Wigan who has worked at both Meredith and Lakeport, but did not live with his wife. Both parties had been at Laconia the past week, where her application for divorce was soon to come up. Mrs. Wiggin went to Meredith over Sunday, and her husband went from Lakeport to Meredith on the morning paper train and waited at the depot for her to arrive. He was armed with a large dagger, a revolver, and knife. And when his wife appeared, accompanied by a daughter about ten years of age, he at once attacked and horribly butchered her. The deed was done with a dagger. Mrs. Wigan laid on the ground covered with blood when the accommodation train rolled in. A hasty examination of the already dead woman showed stabs in the back and breast, a deep cut on the temple, and her throat badly hacked and gaping open. Wigan sat beside the body and gave up the knife and surrendered to an officer a few minutes later. Wigan is about 45 years of age. His wife was some years younger. They had five children, but had not lived together for two years. She claimed that he had threatened at various times to kill her. Wigan was not intoxicated at the time of the murder and is not a hard-drinking man, but has an ugly disposition. County Solicitor Peasley went from Laconia to Meredith this noon, and Wigan will probably be brought to jail here tonight. The story continues with a separate article on the same page. While waiting on the platform at the Meredith Depot, Wigan was noticed by people who had gathered waiting the arrival of the southbound train to make attempts to speak with his wife and to call her out away from the platform. Finally, he stepped up to her and pushed her from the platform to the ground a distance of perhaps 10 feet. He then followed and drew a long dagger from his pocket, at the same time pulling her towards himself, and plunged the knife into her back three times in quick succession. He then threw her to the ground and plunged the knife into her several times with astonishing rapidity. After this was done, he smoothed out her clothes and knelt beside the prostrate form of his victim, with his eyes fastened upon her as if to make a complete survey of his bloody work. There were a dozen or more people in sight while the murder was being done. One young man named Chapman threw a stone which hit Wigan severely behind the ear, but it was hardly noticed by him. The deed was done before the bystanders could hardly realize what was being done. Wigan remained kneeling beside his victim for some minutes until J.D. Bartlett, a police officer, came up with George W. Greenleaf and took him into custody without resistance on his part. Mr. Greenleaf says he has not spoken a word since the deed was done. He was taken to the hotel, handcuffed, and placed under keepers, awaiting the arrival of County Solicitor W.S. Peasley. The body of his victim has been taken in charge by these selectmen and taken to Undertaker H.O. Moulton's rooms, awaiting the arrival of Coroner Colby of Laconia. Wigan lies on a bed at the hotel apparently oblivious to all around him. He had a bad cut back of his ear, either made by himself when raising his knife to strike his victim, or else made by the stone thrown by Chapman. He was searched at the hotel, and another dagger and loaded revolver were found on his person. A telephone message was received from his attorney, Frank W. Beckford of Laconia, telling him not to say a word regarding the matter until his arrival here. This was received while the doctor was dressing his wound, but he made no reply. Next, another domestic nightmare leads to a tragedy on the streets of Lawrence, Massachusetts. This, from the front page of the Fall River Globe, April 6th edition. The headline is, a brutal murder Lawrence April 6th a most brutal murder occurred at seven o'clock last evening on the north side of Common Street near Broadway where Petro Eno, a Boston and Maine brakeman and a worthless husband shot and killed his industrious wife Minnie. only one shot was fired but it lodged at the base of the brain, and the woman fell to the pavement and died without a murmur. The murderer escaped running down Common Street into the darkness. He is about 32 years of age, and his wife was about the same. The couple have a son, seven years old. Eno has been living apart from his wife for some time and has often threatened her life. He often left home, refusing altogether to contribute to his wife's support or that of his child. Mrs. Eno, however, conducted a restaurant at 134 Broadway and provided for the wants of her family. The husband was jealous of his wife without cause and said the reason for refusing to support his wife was because she kept company with other men. He last went away over six months ago. Mrs. Eno discovered that her husband had another wife living in Plainfield, Connecticut. Then she refused to have anything to do with him. He drank, came around the house every week or so, bothered the boarders and threatened his wife. She complained to the police and feared violence. He met her repeatedly by night on the street and threatened to give her a present of a white dress and new box. He came to town last week and was seen on Friday night hovering near his wife's home. There was no trace of him from that time until yesterday. He met his wife half a square away from the restaurant last evening. She was walking to a cloak store when he stepped up, spoke quietly for a minute, then fired the fatal shot. It was quickly done, and so dark was the street, with so few people about, that the murderer had every chance for his cowardly deed and every facility for escape. The police at once began a search for the murderer. All roads were covered and officers sent to watch outgoing trains. Mrs. Eno had conducted a restaurant on Essex Street, but was forced to vacate because the place was leased to a furniture firm. Being forced out, she refused to pay the rent for August and the furniture was attached and sold. Then her sister claimed the furniture, sued the sheriff and recovered $230. Eno demanded half. It is believed that, meeting his wife last night, he demanded $150, and being refused, coupled with jealous rage, he fired the fatal shot. City Marshal Sheehan depends on the newspapers to give a description of the murderer until he can flood New England with circulars. Eno's description is as follows, between 5 feet 7 inches and 5 feet 8 inches in height, weight 150 pounds, square shoulders, hazel eyes, complexion little darker than medium, smooth face of Canadian birth, speaks good English, between 32 and 36 years old, When he escaped, he was attired in a black coat. Pants too short, thought to have a dark stripe. Outside seams, blue and white cotton shirt, without necktie and black stiff hat. The police believe that Eno will try to reach Canada and that he will pass through Manchester or Nashua. Eno is spoken of as a worthless fellow, while on every side are kind words for his wife. A sister of the murdered woman, Sadie Richards, was early on the scene of the murder. She said she felt all along as though Eno would do something desperate, that he has persecuted his wife for years and he's threatened to kill her. Eno was born in Canada and met his victim in Lowell, where she was employed as a waitress in Putnam's restaurant on Merrimack Street. Both came to Lawrence about a year later and were married. And another story follows that one. Out of the same paper, the same page. The headline is, A Horrible Murder. Troy, New York, April 6th. Charles Crowley of Sandy Hill, Washington County was murdered in the woods near Bennington, Vermont, Monday night, and Henry McDowell is charged with the crime. The weapon used was a bludgeon of beech wood, which was found near the spot yesterday, and the murdered man's brains were literally beaten out. Some of the splinters of the wood adhered to the brain tissue. Residents are reported to be in a high state of excitement and threaten summary justice if the murderer falls into their hands. Crowley was found lying unconscious this morning, but died at eight o'clock. He and McDowell were out together in the woods near South Shaftesbury when last seen last night. It is known that Crowley had $60 with him at the time but only 40 cents were in his pockets when found. It is said that Crowley regained consciousness just before he died and gave to State Attorney Mason and Judge Darling the name of his slayer. They have gone to the scene and so positive are they that McDowell is the murderer that the police of the city were notified to be on watch for him as he is believed to have started on foot for Troy, New York after committing the crime. McDowell is five feet, eight inches high, rather stoutly built, and wears a sandy mustache. When last seen, he wore a gray blouse and pantaloons and rubber boots. After committing the crime, McDowell went to Bennington and hung around the sheriff's office for some time, as if disposed to give himself up, but he changed his mind and escaped. Another dark dispute leads to a terrible attack, this time in Omaha, Nebraska. So writes the Omaha Daily Bee on April 8th, page 8. Its headline reads, Beaten and Left for Dead. Miss Annie Williams, an 18-year-old girl, was the victim of a horribly brutal assault and supposed attempt to commit murder sometime yesterday forenoon. Her assailant was Llewellyn Williams, an uncle who has been boarding with a family at 2548 Pierce Street. Shortly after 10 o'clock, neighbors who visited the house found the girl lying in the middle of the dining room floor and to all appearances, murdered. Her head and face were cut and bruised almost entirely out of shape, and her clothes and the carpet for four feet around was saturated with blood. A physician was called and an alarm sent to the police station. The victim, meanwhile, showing signs of returning consciousness. When the patrol wagon arrived, her wounds had been partially dressed, but she was very weak from loss of blood and could give only a disjointed account of what had happened. The young lady had been the housekeeper of the family, which is in very comfortable circumstances and consists of the father, John Williams, who is now in Sioux City, two or three younger children, and the uncle, Llewellyn. There is some property in England over which there is some sort of a dispute, and yesterday a letter was received from there, over which, after the younger ones had gone to school, a quarrel arose between Annie and her uncle. She was sweeping the floor and says that while she was stooping over, he sprang upon her with a large blacksmith's hammer, knocked her down, and beat her into unconsciousness. The hammer was found on the floor beside her, but the uncle had made his escape and the police are now looking for him. Miss Williams was found at a neighbor's house last evening by a B reporter and appeared to be considerably better since the wounds on her head had been dressed by a surgeon. While lying propped up in bed with her head and face almost entirely obscured by bandages, the young lady told the reporter her story of the assault. She said that while sweeping the dining room floor, About 10 o'clock, her uncle came out of the cellar, which opens off the kitchen, and passed very close to her. When directly behind her, he quickly turned and struck her a stunning blow on the head with a heavy stonecutter's hammer, which had been laid away in the cellar. As she fell to the floor, the uncle struck another blow on the back of the head, and then while she was lying dazed and helpless in a pool of blood, attempted to outrage her. When this attempt was made, the girl summoned all her strength and screamed at the top of her voice. But as the house is quite a distance from a neighbor, the cry for help was not heard. The screams of Miss Williams increased the anger of the uncle and he grabbed her by the throat and nearly succeeded in choking her to death. The injured girl said that after the choking, and while she lay nearly insensible on the floor, Williams tried to pick her up and carry her upstairs. But when the hall was reached, gave up the job, and hurried to the kitchen to get a cloth to wipe the blood from the floor and wall. While Williams was gone to look for a cloth, The girl dragged herself to the door, staggered to her feet, and ran to the house of a friend nearby. As soon as the alarm was given, the police were notified, and a doctor was sent for. The house and outbuildings were searched, but the vicious relative had left the premises. He was seen by a mail carrier on 28th Street, hurrying along, with his hands all covered with blood. This was the last time Williams was seen in the vicinity of the crime. In speaking about her uncle and the possible cause of the crime, the girl said, my uncle came here about a year ago from England and pretended to look for work. But in reality, he was a lazy, good-for-nothing man and would not work if he had a chance. Since his arrival in this country, he has sponged a living off of us and has refused to leave, even after being ordered to do so by my father. This morning, my sister, my uncle and myself received letters from my father, in which he said that uncle must go away as we could not support him in idleness any longer. It was the receipt of this letter which probably angered him so that he decided to kill me. It is understood from the residents in the vicinity of the Williams house that Llewellyn Williams was a sour, crabbed, I assume that means crabby, and cranky man and was continually finding fault with the way the house was run. The injured girl frequently cared for a neighbor's wife while sick and was usually escorted home by the husband. This always angered Williams, and as a general thing, he would follow the girl whenever she left the house. Owing to the poor description the girl was able to give of her uncle just after the affair, the police were handicapped in their search for him. Seven officers were detailed on the case and scoured the city in an effort to find the perpetrator of the crime. In regard to the statement about the English property, which it was claimed the uncle was desirous of possessing, Miss Williams said she knows nothing about it and was not aware that she was an heiress. The father who is working in Sioux City has been telegraphed for. Also a brother, at present living in Lincoln. And thus ends another episode of a Aghast at the Past, 1892, Until next time.